Hi, my name is Dana Rudolph. I'm the founder of Teeny Tiny Treatments. Welcome to Teeny Tiny Talks, a platform where we speak to individuals who are changing the world and raising children at the same time. I can't wait for you to meet Jonathan Rubenstein. Talk about a real life Renaissance man. Jonathan is the owner and operator of Joe, an award-winning collection of destination coffee shops in New York City. One of Jonathan's lives was that of a successful camp director. He's also been a talent agent. Jonathan's inspiration for Joe's actually came when Jonathan noticed that many of the city's cafes focused more on their decor and atmosphere than on the coffee that they were serving. In 2002, he left the entertainment field to open a coffee shop that would be obsessively committed to producing coffee as a culinary art. Jonathan's radio, television, and public appearances and press literally span two pages of my Google Doc at a font size of eight. But to name a few, The Chew, Martha Stewart Living, Emerald's Table, named one of the 10 best U.S. coffee bars by Food & Wine, and the New York Times named them as one of the 10 outstanding coffee bars in New York City. On a personal note, I have to say that Joe's Coffee is by far and away the most delicious coffee in New York City and arguably in the country. By summer of 2021, there will be 23 Joe Coffee locations around the city. Jonathan lives with his 12-year-old daughter in Brooklyn and a dog named Belle. Hey, Jonathan. Hi, Donna. So nice to have you. you. So you started Joe's Coffee in 2003. I did. Right? This was, so back then, like, wh what was the main thing with coffee? Was it Starbucks? Was that all that was basically going on? Very much. So there was this, what they would call the third wave of coffee that was kind of sweeping the country, but it was really coming from the Pacific Northwest and New York City that has the greatest restaurants and, you know, everything to excess didn't have what we now call a specialty coffee scene. Starbucks was sort of at the height of being looked upon as a really premium product. And then there were the Greek diners. And then there were like the old school Greenwich Village sort of coffee house and folk music. But um, coffee as a real culinary art had not come to New York whatsoever. So we were pioneers and that was a huge part of our success. So would you say that you attribute some of this to timing? I attribute a lot of our success to timing. And I look now and think, would I ever be courageous enough to open in 2021? Right. And I say no, because we wouldn't be needed, really. There's so many great places now. I I lived overseas in 2002. And coffee, I'm sure you know this, overseas is very expensive. It's really expensive. It's not like you can just buy a cup and walk around with it solo. Wow. Coffee is really a... Um, that, like you're you're having coffee socially. You're going to meet somebody for coffee. So I have to tell you, like I came into this scene in New York, and I'm like a huge coffee slut. Like I'll have it anywhere, any with anybody at yeah. any point. Black, white, I don't care. I don't care yeah. if there's sugar in it. And until I tasted Joe's, <laughs> and it's delicious. Um, I credit a lot of our success to Starbucks and sort of training people to what to pay, what to like, what the drinks are. I do think that Starbucks deserves a lot of credit in sort of paving the way for independent coffee bars. And a lot of times it is kind of the gateway to a different quality or taste of coffee. Are you like in some kind of a, I don't know, society for independent coffee shops? That in the early days, um, when the community was very small, maybe there were four or five independent players the first five or six years we were in business, we all knew each other really well. Cafe Grumpy and Ninth Street Espresso, um, 
who sort of, you know, are very careful to make sure we don't impact uh, each other's business. We talk and we share war stories a lot. And we've been on the phone the last few months talking about PPP and employees and PPE and all of that because, you know, we're kind of in our own bubbles and it's really helpful to have someone who really understands how complex our business is and how we can kind of help each other. Um, so, okay, when you started this in 2002, was the goal to just have a coffee shop or did you see this? Because by summer of 2021, you are going to have 23 coffee shops, correct? We will. We will. Uh, no, the goal was the goal was three and grew organically. And at some point, it's just, it's a different, it's a different way of thinking about the future and the people you employ in my own family. And the truth is to some degree, I kind of got addicted to growth and a little bit competitive. Hmm. And that's how it's evolved in the 18 years to, you know, this much bigger business that is these 20 something cafes, but also a roasting business that wholesales coffee to a slew of other restaurants and cafes and is sold in Whole Foods and grocery stores and teaches classes to people that are interested and caters. You know, I have a sister who is a partner and her entire job now is catering. We did before the pandemic, I think we did 400 events the year prior. I mean, there were days that we had six different pop-up events at weddings and bar mitzvahs and trade shows and film shoots. Wow. There's a lot more than just the cafes, but that's really the heart and soul of the business and certainly how it started. Wow. When I look at your resume, I mean, you were a camp director. You worked in the talent industry. Were you a talent director? Were you a talent agent? Yeah. Okay. Like, you really sound like a renaissance man. I mean, or, you, I sound like I could never quite get it together and figure out what to do. But, but it seems like you, I mean, it feels like everything you've touched sort of has turned to gold. Like, what That's do you right. attribute that to? And have you always been this motivated? Um, I, I, yes, I've always loved to start things. That's always the most exciting to me. So I guess I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur. I mean, I do remember when I was a kid, I had a cookie business and a snowplow business and I was doing lemonade stands and I started a, you know, I started a day camp um, in Cleveland way before these other things. So what's fun and exciting to me is um, starting and running projects. Where do you think, you know, because how did you make the transition to coffee? What made you think coffee? Nothing. I mean, was- I moved to New York um, in 1999. I had always been in the arts and loved theater and, and film, but wasn't talented enough to ever pursue it. And so I kind of fell into um, casting and then into talent. And um, I left that because I was unhappy and I didn't necessarily like the people I was surrounded by. And when I left, I did not have a job and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I did take six months of getting unemployment and to just make lists of things that excited me and everything came back to starting my own business. And this cafe idea, um, because it just sounded so romantic and I literally walked by our original space on Waverly Place in the Village and there was a sign that said for rent, no business plan, no long-term plans, no understanding. Did you go to business school? No. 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 Okay, so like, how did you figure out, so you you go get this lease, how did you figure out branding? How did you figure out, um, I don't know, where to source your coffee from? How did you? That's a good question. I do remember saying, if I'm gonna do this, 
I'm going to focus on something that nobody else is focused on. And th that was going to be uh, coffee as, as culinary art. But I also remember as a Midwesterner that I said, another way to differentiate us, we're going to be so nice that when somebody walks out of Joe, we're going to say, that coffee is great, but the people are amazing. And so we're going to really focus on hospitality and the experience and getting to know people as regulars, whether it's their first time there or their hundredth. And that's what's going to set us apart. Um, cut to 2017, we were invested in, which you probably know, by a group called Union School Hospitality Group, which is run by a very famous restaurateur named Danny Meyer, who started Gramercy Tavern and Union Square Cafe, but is also now famous for starting Shake Shack. Right. You know, Danny is the master of hospitality, and that is what that is what has always set him apart. You know, he wrote a very famous book that we studied for years called Setting the Table. And we used that in all of our training. Mm -hmm. I didn't know him. I had never met him, but I idolized him for what his vision is. And then cut to four years ago, he owns a major part of our company now. And, and you know, and, and we are one family. And so that also was sort of a lucky happenstance um, marrying of ideals and ideas that really served us well. Right. Because we have the same philosophies and um, he was looking for companies that were like-minded and that were hospitality focused. Right. And you, you, you know, you see that now, but I feel like in the early 2000s, that just didn't exist. Did you have any mentors? I, I, I do. I'm very fortunate. One of my first customers uh, when we had one cafe uh, is a guy named Randy Garudi and Randy is now the CEO of Shake Shack. And so oh. he's a wonderful mentor. Um, um, and I also have a mentor named Mike Tucci, who's on our board, who has a very illustrious career as CEO of Rag and Bone and coach for a while and oh. um, has been terrific to sort of bounce ideas by. But I, I'm, I'm a big advocate of just asking questions of people who are even peripherally connected to us where it's appropriate. So uh, what's it like to be a boss? I, I take pride in trying to be a good boss and a good person and treating people well and making sure that they are happy and have a path forward. Um, the name, I mean, I assume I, I understand why you called it Joe, but is there another reason? And do people think your name is Joe? Many people think my name is Joe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, many people have been coming into Joe for 18 years and I'll see them on the street and they'll be like, hey, Joe, and at this point, <laughs> I'm not going to correct them. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, there's like, there's the old, you know, cup of Joe is really oh, what yeah. it came from. And yeah, it was, a, it was a friend's suggestion. It seemed catchy. It was different. So like, like in terms of like five years, 10 years, do you see yourself still with Joe? Certainly in five years, I do. Damn. 10 years? I mean, I'm 52 years old. Is there an exit plan? Maybe someday. <laughs> but imagine, you know, in 20 years when I'm not part of Joe going to Joe. And people are standing behind the counter and I say, I'm not sure if you know who I am, but I started this like yeah. thing. But maybe it'll happen. Yeah, that's cool. And my name is not Joe. It's not. Right. <laughs> it's so interesting. I I talk mostly to women. I, I haven't had many men uh on the podcast. But women really suffer from imposter syndrome. Do you suffer from it at all? Are you because you seem so confident? Most people I know who run companies, especially once they started, do suffer from that. Am I here? I'm here because I started something and I was lucky. I wouldn't have been hired to run the company at this point. Um, and I, I have found that 
the way that I make up for some of my lack of training and skill is to really work to surround myself by people who are knowledgeable and good at what they do and then listen to them and give them a runway to do what they do best. Um, so you're a single dad by choice. Yes. Did you always want to have children? I didn't know it was possible for me as a gay man. Uh, when I was younger, there weren't a lot of ways to do that. And um, it wasn't until I was in my mid to late 30s that I learned about the possibility of having a biological child, which is ultimately what I did. You know, there is a little bit of an age thing. I had her when I was just shy of 40, which is not old, but it's not young. Did people discourage you? Not one, zero. Oh, I've had a few people come forward later to say, when you told me you were doing this, you know, <laughs> I thought you were crazy. And, you know, I didn't want to say, did you think about what it would be like to not have a mother? Or how will you be able to balance your life and your work and give her everything? Uh, and it's been hard at times, but I wouldn't change it for anything. Right. Do you have a village? Do you have people? Like, do you have your people? Yes. Do you, think, do you think that that is necessary? Like, for anybody who's contemplating being a single parent by choice, is that a must? I wouldn't say a must. Okay. You know, I do know people who have done it without a support system. I think it would be difficult, but I think people make it work. I wouldn't tell someone, I wouldn't suggest to someone that they not fulfill the most important part of their life because of that. Yes, I'm lucky. My parents are healthy. They're very involved. They live in New York City. My sister lives two floors above me with her eight-year-old, so they're cousins. I mean, these have been instrumental in helping to raise Sally and turn her into the person she's becoming. Are you open with her? Like, have you been open with her from the beginning and saying, this is how you were born. This is how, like, she knows everything. I did not want to create an after school special. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm lucky enough that we live in Brooklyn. Yes. She's never, not once ever been made to feel like she is lacking or this is weird not having a mother is there anything is there anything that as a male you wish you had known and is there anything just as a single parent um as a male i've, I've definitely had to work very hard to fill the role of maternal and paternal yeah. and be ready for different emotions that girls have and puberty as it hits and things like that that um you know i think that it would be it would have been great if there were a female for things like that but um but i try and i'll use other people as need be to you know be it have tough conversations or make sure she knows that you know i may be her parent but she has an aunt who she can talk to about things that maybe she's more comfortable and will understand having been through some things right as a single person i, I think that um i think sometimes decision making can be difficult because I would, I assume and understand you and your husband can talk through complex problems and issues and make decisions where I don't quite have that in the same way. What are, what are some differences or similarities to how you were raised in how um, you're raising your daughter? That's a great question. I think the core values are very similar. I okay. uh, revere my parents. I love the way they raised me and we're still very close. And I definitely take a lot of that in raising Sally. I also, because we're so close and because they're such a part of her life, they're still modeling a lot of that for me, mm -hmm. which is really helpful. Um, I think that I put more pressure on her than my parents put on myself and my sister. Huh. Um, 
uh, I think I'm a little bit more intense than they were as a pair, call it a higher They didn't have to be with you, obviously. I think my dream is that she will want to be close to me when we're adults and treat her family and children in similar ways. And the most important thing I ever think of, like my dream, I'll have a great relationship with my daughter when she's an adult and that we'll be in each other's lives in a very meaningful way. Do you see some... Do you see space for someone else in your life? And is it a subject that you've breached with your daughter? I think for a long time I didn't because I was so busy between yeah. work that I sort of compartmentalized. And then as she gets older, I, I do. I, I, I needed less in a different way. Yeah. And I see the end coming a little bit. We, we talk about it. We didn't, I mean, it wasn't age appropriate. Yeah. And I think she quite realized that there was possibility that I wouldn't be the only person in her life for a long time. Right. Now she's just in the point where she'll joke about it a little bit or ask me huh. if she sees a text come in, she'll say, is that a date? Which it's usually not. <laughs> right. But I'm not closed off to it. And I certainly hope that there's a significant other at some point. And how are the adolescent years coming along? Like, what am I headed towards? What's happening? Oh, it's tough. It's different. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's, a sense of independence and a door closing and a focus on friends that's very different than yeah. the world revolving around a kid. But I expected this. I read a lot about this. <laughs> these are normal, healthy developmental phases. Are you one of those parents who like checks the phone? I think that was a major mistake that I made in not setting those rules and boundaries early. That's very tricky. And yeah. there have definitely been conflicts about privacy and snooping and you need to look at my phone and do not trust me. And uh, yeah, I think if you ask me what my biggest parenting fail was, it was not setting proper parameters, how the screen is used and what's appropriate. That's very dangerous. Yes. I just know you look back at choices that I think everybody makes and there have been some that I say, oh, if I could do that all over again, yeah. or if I could change the fact that we have dessert every night, or if I had... <laughs> No, really. Yes, you know, me too. Feel, um, if you could give your 18-year-old self some advice, what would it be? Um, just just do it. Just go for it and um, live life to the fullest. What is your go-to app? Wikipedia. Oh. I know. Unusual. What are you looking up? Every time I hear about something in the news, I look up everything. I'm on it 20 times a day. I think it's so fascinating to hear a reference in a conversation or in a TV show and just look it up. What did you uh, look up today? Today? What did I look up today? I looked up the new stimulus bill, what was written about it. I looked up... You're going to have to explain it to me at some okay. point. Um, what's your go-to exercise? I splurged and I bought something that I am obsessed with called the mirror. So I have been taking yoga classes by myself in my living room every day since November. Wow. But I also live in New York, so I get about 20,000 steps every day. Um, what's your best go-to dinner? I have started making a rice and leek dish with almonds and lemon that's amazing that I've been making on a weekly basis. Wow. But I also am a big user of the New York Times cooking app and whatever looks interesting. I check it twice a day. They post recipes twice a day and I bookmark things and try them all the time. 
love oh gosh, Jonathan. I'm coming oh, to your house. By go by go to dinner, I meant like pasta boiled. Yeah. What uh would you say your glass is half empty or half full? Uh I would say half full. Yeah. I think that's so important. I can get into a place where it's half empty. Yeah. But what does that really do? Right. How do you get how do you get out of the dark? It's not easy. I think I think one just you force yourself because what's the alternative? And you know, in my situation, I'm the single person responsible for someone else's life. I can't go there mentally or emotionally or again financially. So you just you just make it you just make it work, you make it happen. And how do you take your coffee? I actually put a little bit of milk in it, which is sacrilegious for a lot of coffee purists. Is it? It is. Milk? Or what? The trivia is really- I told milk. you I was slutty. This is new oh, to me. Because initially the reason people put things in milk was to cover the taste of bad coffee. So they would experiment with everything from hmm. orange juice to just more water to milk. And it sort of stuck, but uh, really coffee should be drunk black to just taste the coffee but like you most people are sort of used to the attachment they've had with coffee since they started drinking it that's would you say you're a coffee snob at this point yeah i yeah. mean if i have to use yeah. the printers yes 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 it's my profession for 18 years and yes do you, know think, are you, do you look down on me do you think differently of me now uh, no you come no. to joe of course okay, not. okay. No. i put a I lot of milk in my that's latte no, that's not Joe. Joe is not a place to judge others okay. about the coffee. That's against our ethos. Jonathan, this has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. I think people are going to love this. Mm -hmm.